you have your, there I am on, okay, got real loud. Bibles, please open to Luke chapter 8. We are going to be covering Luke chapter 8, verse 40 through 56. And um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. If you don't own one, feel free to keep it. Uh, And as you're opening there on the Padre tickets, we probably have about 25 remaining. And, you know, don't let the money stand in the way. It's a great party. Next week, we'll have all the instructions on where we're going to meet. Um, They'll be in the bulletin. We meet at the tailgate park probably around 5 o'clock, spend a couple hours, eat, fellowship. And then it's in the, you know, the Padres, you know, in Rick's defense, Padre fans have very low expectations for their sporting teams. And so they have won, you know, they won last night. And so they're doing great in our books. And, um, but it's a great time. So plan on coming out. And they are playing San Francisco Giants, who are the World Series champions. So that might get some people, <laughs> that, that might get some people out. Um, okay, well, before we read our section... This, this story in today's passage is, is one of these very heavy, weighty stories. Um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, he writes this. He said, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. And in today's story, we are going into a house of mourning. If we allow the story to come alive, um, studying for this um, passage, if I allow my mind to wander too far, it's 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 heart wrenching. As a dad, as a pastor of girls, um, in light of this story, and and it's good. The Bible tells us that we we need to kind of experience these moments. And so on this weekend, the Fourth of July celebration. Why we, it's a house of feasting and celebration and barbecue and good times. The text which we've been working through, we're, we're at a different section. And at, t- at the end of today's story, we're going to be a third of the way through Luke. It's taken six months. So I have another year to go based on this, ra- or, you know, either, or the rapture. We'll see what happens first. But as we look at the story, we're told that it's better to go to this place of mourning Um, sorrow, for for what reason? Well, the reason is at the end of all of our lives, we don't know if we have the rest of today, we don't know if we have another 80 years, but at the end, eventually, each of us is going to stand before God. And at that day, Christian and non-Christian alike, we're going to stand judgment. We're going to face him and give an account for our lives. And the thing about funerals, when you see a body that's lying there, it's sad when it's somebody you love and, and we often like it's sad because we're going to miss the person. We love the person. But there's also this other aspect, the sobering aspect of like, like my day is going to come to like, like the whole reality that you don't live forever. It really comes to come to bear. And so if we recognize now what's coming, which we don't know when it helps us to live today in preparation for the day when we stand before God. It, it gives us a sort of bearing for how we live our lives, the things that we do. And so when we read this story, I'm going to pray, we'll read it, and we're going to work our way through. I'm going to do my best. My, my inclination is when your emotions start thinking too much, my, my reaction is to kind of retract and not to allow my mind to go there. I'm going to guard from that. Um, so hopefully we can feel the power behind this story today. Um, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we ask. As we come to the story of Jairus and his daughter and this woman who has bleeding for 12 years, Lord, we, um, we pray that your spirit would bring this story to life. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, um, to be gripped with the reality that we face in this life of losing people, dying ourselves, having sicknesses and illnesses. Father, we pray that through this story, we would our eyes would fall upon you. And Lord, that we would see that Jesus is our only hope. That we would be able to reach out to him and be cleaned. Lord, that we would replace our fear with faith. Father, help us as we go through this story now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him. 
for they had been they all had been they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the crowd, people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. And he gave orders for something to be given to her, given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. And, Father, we ask you for help now as we go through the story. Lord, help us, as, help us to understand what it means and how it applies to our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 40 begins with, and as Jesus returned, well, where did he come from? Last week, the story was that they were in Capernaum. I don't have my pointer, but the Sea of Galilee, the northern body of water in Israel. They were on the northwestern shore around that area, and they had sailed across the sea to the southeastern side of the lake to the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis wasn't like the rest of um, the Sea of Galilee region. This was an area for, for Gentiles, for, for non-Jewish people. The tension between these two groups was intense. Uh, it's still that way today. I mean, you have Syria up there. It'd be like if a, which would never happen, a Jewish person would never go vacation in Iran because of the hatred of the people groups. And so Jesus said, let's go to the other side. Let's go to Decapolis. And the disciples probably had this like, great, like, oh, no, we're going to go to the other side. They begin crossing. Big storm comes up. They think that this is sort of satanic involvement, like you're not supposed to go to the Decapolis. Jesus calms the storm. They get there. And as they're, uh, as they're pulling the boat up from shore, this man who'd lived in the tombs, who was demon-possessed, who had... They'd, they'd shackled him. He'd broken out of his shackles. Great strength. He'd been cutting himself. He, he was crazy. The people didn't know what to do with him. He runs up and begins imploring Jesus to depart, to get away from him. He doesn't want any business. And Jesus takes the demons, casts them into the, the, allows the demons to go into the swine. The swine go in the Sea of Galilee and die. Then the man, is, he gets his clothes on. He's in his right mind. He's no longer crazy. The shepherds go and tell all the people. The people come. They see this man sitting in his right mind. They're overcome with fear. They knew who this guy was. He was the local crazy demon-possessed guy that had been there for years. Suddenly, he's totally fine and healthy. More people come, and they eventually tell Jesus, Jesus, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Jesus gets in a boat, and he's heading back to today's story. And as he's getting in the boat, this man who's healed from these demons goes to Jesus, falls down, begs, pleads, please take me with you. And Jesus says, no, you stay and you tell everybody here what God has done in your life. And Jesus departs. And as they return, they land on the shore. This huge crowd of people had formed, welcoming him, for they had all been waiting for him. They knew Jesus was coming back. I mean, hundreds of people we're going to see in the story. 
I mean, huge. Think like Del Mar Fair crowds. Huge people waiting. They see him. He touches. Swarm crowd forms. And then we're introduced to this man. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus. And he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years old, and she was dying. Jairus was a, essentially the, a pastor. He would be the caretaker responsible. He was not the guys that were traveling around. If they didn't have a guest speaker, he would be the one that handled the teaching, handled the responsibility of the synagogue. He would be a very esteemed person within their culture and community. He'd be respected. We see that he has an only child, a daughter, about 12 years old, and she's dying. And I don't care how much influence you have over other people, how rich you are, how much wealth you have, or maybe rich and wealth are the same things, like your, the powerful jobs. When a father comes home, sees his child dying, the playing field is leveled. I've never been in this situation but I've been around the situation, and it's, it's horrible. Here's this guy who loves his daughter. He's, he's God's sort of ambassador liaison with the people. Now, I don't think it's, you know, like, of course, every person in Christ is a priest, and we all have this connection. But as a chaplain, as a pastor, being invited into these moments, there's this People turn to you and you realize how helpless you are. Like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace that God's placed me into this role. I don't know the bigger picture. And then when it hits you, like, you're not immune to these things. There's no, don't let yourself think that a pastor has some sort of super duper communication with God. We all have the same access to Christ. And so here's this man with his daughter. Tried everything. She's dying. She's in her final moments. He doesn't know what else to do. Well, maybe I should leave. I hear that Jesus is coming. And this story hits like, like going there, trying to place ourselves in his shoes. See, I'm a, I'm a dad. I have two daughters. I found that during the last service, I tend to talk about grace more, not because they, I love them both. Like, like when you have multiple kids, it's just amazing how different they are, but all the same, but all kind of wacky in their own little way. And you love them, and they're all special. But the story's talking about like his oldest daughter, so I tend to like I I I tend to tell more stories about Grace just because that's just it's similar in the story. I'm a I'm a dad with daughters, and I love it. Anna's grandpa, maternal grandpa who I never met, I've stolen a line from him. See, he had five daughters, no sons. And apparently the, what his saying was is that God knew that there was already a man in the house, so he didn't need to send another one. And so I, I use that line a lot, you know, so I like, you know, and I'll stop using it if I, if Lord gives a son. I don't know, you know, well, but for now, that's my saying. I love being a dad of girls. It's so much fun. There's like so much more pink in my life than I ever could have imagined. <laughs> Ballet class yesterday, buying leotards and skirts. And Grace and I love, I love spending time with her. Like I run around church errands. We have our thing. We go to Costco or Smart and Final Weekly to do the shopping. It's our time to like have dad and daughter date and crank out like errands for the church. We both love Chipotle. Mom doesn't like Chipotle. <laughs> so we ditch mom and we go to Chipotle and get greasy quesadillas. And she loves it and she guards the chips and we have so much fun together. And it's been five years, but it seems like that. And see, and I know dads, like all dads with daughters that are marrying them off. And so oh, it goes quick. You cherish this time. Well, I'm cherishing it. But Grace realizes what's going on. About two years ago, she's three, she comes up to Ann and I, she sits us down and she says, Mom, Dad, I need to talk to you. <laughs> What's going on, Grace? She said, one day, a man's going to knock on our front door. He's going to ask me to marry him. 
and I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to move away, and we're going to move somewhere off Lilac, and you can visit us whenever you want. <laughs> and as a dad, and a three-year-old's telling you this, it's like, no, it's just like, you're my baby girl. Like, I don't care if you're 100 years old and you have great, great, great grandchildren. You're still my little baby. She's like, no, daddy, I'll be a grandma and I'll be a great grandma. Then I will not be anybody's baby. Like, yes, you will be my baby. I've seen elderly people, a 90 year old, the one retirement home. That was a boy, but it was there was a 90 year old parent and a 70 year old child in the same retirement home. And hearing the younger one talk about still treat me like a kid. (laughs) 70 years old. Still like, you're always going to be the baby to your parent. And she says this to me, and I love the time of like nurturing her and reading the Bible and knowing that this guy's going to come knock on the door someday to marry her. So the screwing her now to help understand what a godly husband is, how she can select the wise guy. You know, I like he's better be good. And there's nothing sweeter than seeing a dad who like like loves his little girls. Like Dave, I told I didn't bring it up during the last service because he wasn't sitting there to be my mental reminder. But at the church business meeting, of all places, like I didn't even see it, but I got the mental image from Anna, who's in the back, like crying, looking at Dave. And Dave all the time talks to me. He's like, man, like when Isabel started sitting through church, I'm like, man, she was like engaged. She's like, man, that kid sits through me reading the Bible. I am horrible, boring. Like I'm like reading through Leviticus and she pays attention. You're way easier. But then Anna tells me this picture, which I could see. Is that the business meeting, we sang a couple songs at the end. And Dave's sitting there and she said, little Isabel, who I think is coming up on eight. Coming up on eight, I got it. She's going to be baptized here. She loves the Lord. And she's there with her eyes closed worshiping next to her dad. And there's nothing more beautiful. And then here's this guy, Jairus who has this little girl that he's invested and he loves at 12 years old, 12 years old in that culture, especially this is like getting close to where she's going to be married off. Maybe they'd already kind of found the husband and they were, I mean, it was, this was a community effort finding the husband, you know, like they probably already had like talks underway and he's dreaming about the future and his daughter's going to get married. All of this is gone. He's desperate. Jesus is there. He has no other option. And he's going to go to her. Go to him. Go to Jesus. He's healed people. I've heard about what he's to do. I'm going to go fall. On his, I'll fall down. I'll try to get him there. And so Jairus goes. Pleads his case to Jesus. Somehow he gets there in the midst of the crowd. I don't know because of his authority. Because of his stature in the community. Because he was in the synagogue ruler. One of the rulers of the synagogue that he could find his way to the front. And when Jesus got him, he pleaded before him and said, Jesus, come, my daughter, she's sick, she's dying, she's 12. My only one. You're the only hope for her. Jesus had conceded that he would go. In the second half, we read, but as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And this picture here, today at 2 o'clock, I mean, by, I got to get there by 2 o'clock is my goal. We have a kid, Nathaniel Fredericks. He's got a pig in the fair. They compete. I've, wanted to go. I've already tried once, but the crowds were too obnoxious. Like the parking lot, we like drove all the way down there. We got waved off. We came back. So I embraced myself. I got money for parking. I got to get there by 2. Because at 2 o'clock, he's shown his pig. And it's like, a, it's like a competition for some money. And he's knitted his pig a sweater. And he has a matching sweater. And he's going to walk around. And my goal is to be there to take all kind of pictures and get them up on Facebook. So I'm like, <laughs> Rick's like, put it up here. So I'm going to go down there. So I'm like bracing for the crowd. I hate crowds like this. It's like there's so many people. This word here, pressing against, it's only used one other place in the Bible. And we just read it a couple weeks ago in the parable of the soils. All of the gospels that mention the parable of the soils when it comes to the thorns crowding out or choking out the life of the seed, that's this word. This is the only other place that word is used. So this is not like, 
minor crowds. This is a huge, this is Del Mar Fair in line for the chocolate-covered bacon crowd, you know, like, get away. This dad with a daughter who's dying got to Jesus, pleaded his case. Jesus says yes, and they're starting to move, but it's like resistance. And as a Christian, like, you take all of, like, the, you know, the good angel side, you know, our spiritual side of, like, you know, like, there's a right thing to do and there's a wrong thing to do. There are times when on the inside I want nothing more to like start kicking people and getting out of the way. Like as a SEAL instructor, I could see guys with broken legs and say, dude, suck it up. It's like, but there's bone out. <laughs> suck it up. Get out there, you know. My little daughters get a little splinter. I'm like, we got to get to the ER right now. <laughs> like dads with their daughter, like it's different. And so here he got him, his daughter's dying. He's like, we got to get through. This crowd is pressing around. And as this happens, this woman's situation, like I, I, he doesn't quite know, but Jesus starts stopping. And when I look at this pressing against this choking, see, it's bad when like, see, normally when I teach the Bible and I go through all week long leading up to it, I struggle and wrestle through the text. Not just like what it says, but like in my own life, like if I teach on it, I struggle with it. And it's just like, that's what God throws at me. And then normally by Sunday, as soon as I finish this service, I'm already thinking ahead. I get a week off next week, hopefully, if I can talk the Australian Bible translator to give the message next week. But I'm already starting to think about there's a 72 go out next week. So I I turn the page and I move on. But two weeks ago, when I taught on the parables of the soil, this whole like the the weed, the, the... the choking out just stuck with, I mean, it was like, like the last two weeks I've had to like go through my calendar and like, oh, like I got, I got to cut my hours down. I can't, I can't do it all. But I look at the stuff that Jesus deals with. Like everywhere he goes, there's people with great need. And this is life. And, and it's not that like for me, I'm not Jesus and I can't do it all. Like he can do it. Jesus can do it all. It's a pretty high standard. But even here, there's like, here's this child that's dying. Here's this woman that's now by faith is like 12 years we're going to see of, of bleeding. And, and the tension of what do I do? And I need wisdom. There's so much. And when I read this and looking at the growing of our church, like the deal with churches is the more people you have, the more problems you have. Because <clears throat> we all have problems. We all have trials and tribulations. And the hardest thing I've had is like, you know, being in situations where there's a major thing happening and there's crises and my family realizes that there's crises. But there's like people dying and then there's like your daughter's birthday party and there's like stuff that you've got to balance. And when I look at this, I realize if you are coming to church here, if you are a Christian it's not a sitting man's game. I'm not in ministry because I'm a pastor. I'm in ministry because I'm a Christian. And if you read Timothy, you see that if you've trusted in Christ, suddenly you are like drafted into service to serve. And we need, if we're going to continue, we have an impact in people's lives. It's, it's paramount that we each are in the word, that we're growing. And if you're visiting wherever you are, be in the word, grow and be available for God to use you because he uses people. And so here, Jesus, if I'm Jairus, as we turn, see, this whole story is about Jairus, and there's this interruption of this woman in the midst of it. And if I'm this man, I'm like panicking. Okay, my daughter's like on her deathbed. When I saw her, 12-year-old kid, hospice says any second now, we've got to get there. Get through this crowd. And then in the midst of this, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Who touched me? What's going on? And I just picture, it doesn't say it, but throughout this whole story of this woman, I see this guy like looking at his watch, like pacing, like, okay, come on, (laughs) come on, let's get, come on. We're running out of time. And you guys are all got stuff, but I've given my life for you. I'm a pastor. I care about all you, but my daughter's on the line here. In verse 43, what we read is, and a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years could not be healed by anyone. There's some humor here. We don't. Well, well there's 12. Yeah, there, if you guys caught that, Larry was very good, very observant. 
You'll notice, oh, 12 years. It wasn't Jairus' daughter 12 years. Yeah, there's, there's 12 years there. And I think that the 12 years is time. 12 years is a long time. Like it's, it's 2011. 12 years is, I think, 1999 if my math is right. I, was, I went to public school, so I'm kind of like rough on. <laughs> and I wasn't paying attention, so I was like. <laughs> but like 1990, like where were you in 1999? That's a long time if you start thinking about it. This lady had this problem, this hemorrhaging, this menstrual problem of bleeding for 12 years. See, in all my studies, everybody said, oh, it's just a, mi- it's just a minor problem. It's, not re- it's really not significant or whatever. And I kind of said that during the last service, and one of the nurses said, if you are bleeding like that for 12 years, do you know, understand how anemic you are and how like horrible and painful and like lethargic? But see, Luke is a physician. And he just kind of points out, okay, there's this lady, she's hemorrhaging 12 years. No one could heal her. It's almost like he's got his union card and he's like trying to like, you know, soften the blow. But I want us to go check out what Mark says and then you'll see the humor and how Luke describes it. Keep your place in Luke. And then when we go to Mark, put your bullets in in Mark because towards the end we'll come back to that page. And so in Mark chapter 5, verse 25 is where... Mark records this story. 25 says, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Story's very consistent. Then you get to verse 26. Luke just says, oh, she's seen a lot of people and nobody was able to heal her. Mark says, and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse. We don't know this lady's age. It's likely she could be older than Jesus during this story, which will be significant later. But 12 years, there is, there's the physical side of the story. But the question, why is she spending so much? Like, why is she every last penny, doctor after doctor trying to get help? Why is she doing this? See, according to Mosaic law, she's unclean. You can turn back to Luke, but hold your place in in Mark. And this lady, for 12 years, was not allowed to go to any public place, was not allowed to be touched by anybody. If she was married, the husband likely divorced her, or if she was married, there was no intimacy in the marriage, or she was never married. She'd given every last penny that she had, and a woman that's alone in that culture with no money is totally destitute. There is no government help. 12 years not holding a baby, not going to church. Anybody that she came near would flee from her. And the sorrow of loneliness, and the, we are people that are designed to be in fellowship with other people. We need relationships. Even if you're like me, and I'm not a... Um, what do they call that? Extrovert. Like you guys are fooled by talking. Like being in crowds, it just zaps me. It's like throw me on a mountain by myself for three weeks and that's where I get my energy. But even me, I need to like be around people. Like, And here she is 12 years, isolated, alone, desperate. She had gone through everything that she has to get help. All of the doctors, everything. Did they help her a bit? No, she got worse. And we come to what Luke says in verse 43. It says, And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. So there's this huge crowd. See, just to remind you guys, we often forget Jesus was Jewish. Jewish man. He was not Swedish. He did not have like long flowing blonde hair. He was a totally a Jewish man. Jewish men, rabbis, they had these clothes. I forget what they're called. They're prayer shawls. You can put them over your head. You see them today. They're white. Today they have like blue stripes for the Israel flag. And there's normally like four tassels that hang down that are their prayer cords. This woman who shouldn't have been in this crowd. I mean, for a woman to be in this condition, if she sat on a chair, that chair was contaminated, no longer to be used. I mean, this is serious. She sneaks up in the crowd behind Jesus, 
And I think she just kind of subtly touches his cord. Maybe. She's desperate. There's nowhere. She's gone everywhere. Her only option is Jesus. And she, by faith, reaches out to say, maybe this. And the moment that happened, she's restored. And thinking about the nurse that talked to me. See, we just think, like reading this story, we think, oh, the bleeding just stopped. Oh, it was the immediate healing. More than that, it's not just the stop of bleeding. Her blood is restored. Her organs that had been suffering this 12 years of loss and, and trying to catch up instantly restored. Her color came back. She knew right away. Whoa. And as this happens, in the midst of this crowd, I don't know what she's like. I would imagine a smile. Like if you are blind and suddenly can see if you can't hear and suddenly you can hear. If your foot's broken and suddenly it feels good. Like I'm, I'm, I suppose she had some evidence on her face that she went from like not being so happy or discouraged to being happy. And as this happens, in verse 46, Jesus said, no, wait, I'm sorry, um, verse 45, and Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they all were denying it, I'm going to stop. So Jesus, as she does this immediately, who touched me? Who touched me? And suddenly this woman's like, oh, no, I'm so busted. And it's a rhetorical question. He knows who touched him. He's God. He knows. He's giving her an opportunity to respond. And as he asked the question, I was like, not me, not me. I didn't do it. Like, I don't know if suddenly Jesus had his personal bubble given back. I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. Don't hurt me. It reminds me of when I was a student in Bud's training. And I see the story differently now. So I'm going to kind of go between SEAL instructor and student. So I was a student. I'd finally reached the point in training where I thought there was hope that I was going to make it. I was in the very last phase. We were one week away from going out to San Clemente Island for our final last things. It was supposed to be fun. All we were going to do is shoot and blow things up and run. Like that was all we had to do. And right before, probably like two or three weeks before we were to fly out, they had to do some rearranging in the barracks. And so our rooms in barracks, in the barracks we were in, there were two rooms that were connected by a joint bathroom that everybody shared. And there were no keys because keys would just ruin stuff with all the sand. So it's like little cipher locks. You had your little code. And they moved my friend and I, Tom, from one room to the other room. But nobody ever moved into that second room. And they never changed the code. And so we got this idea. This is awesome. We'll use this as like our old room will be like our working out of room. We'll kind of clean it up. We'll let it be dirty. We'll stash all our dirty clothes in the lockers. We'll have this room always ready to go for inspection. Perfect beds. I mean, a floor where you can like see your face and comb your hair on. And if we ever have inspection, we'll just go over there. See, now flipping the page, as an instructor, what I realized happened, I did not know this at the time. Like there's a guy who's in charge of the barracks, maintaining all the rooms, getting them ready for other guys to move in. When you move out, he goes through and he fixes all the little stuff. Obviously, word got out. Hey, you know, you got to. Um, we moved two kids out of this room and the room's still being used. And then they're in the other room and we don't know really what's going on. And can he resolve it? So there was like no way out. But I didn't know I was already busted. And so I was going to stick through the whole line thing. One day, it's like, hey, there's a room inspection. Get to your room. So I'm like, we're so good. We all just walk up right to my inspection room. I'm standing there. My roommate, Tom, he was gone. I think he was a dental or somewhere. I don't know where he was. And I'm standing there with my room open, ready for them to come through. And this is going to be easy. And I hear all this yelling and screaming. Like, we're going to, like, screaming, like, we're going to yell, tear somebody's head off. I'm like, yeah, wouldn't want to be that guy. So glad it's not me. And all of a sudden, I hear it's coming through the bathroom. I'm like, oh, no, they're in that room. See, they knew what was going on, but I didn't realize they knew what was going on. So they come to me, and I'm like, I have no idea. And my buddy's not there, so, of course, he's a perfect candidate to sell out. Maybe it was Tom. Maybe it was his. I don't know. I haven't been over there. They moved us over here. We've been here. I have no idea. And so they're giving me this opportunity to kind of come, like, you know, the fess up so that, they, so that I could, they could deal with me differently. They're like, you sure you have no idea? And man, I had already said I, I'm not going to be caught. I'm not going to get my lie caught in the lie. 
I have no idea what's going on in that room. And I walk over, and it's sort of a blur in my mind because life got really bad for me real quick. But all I remember is there was like my my cami pants, and it seemed like a, a neon billboard. It said Hanson. And I must have had sunflower seeds in my pocket because there were sunflower seeds everywhere. And they're like, it says Hanson on your pants. It's Hanson pants. Are you sure you want to tell us? I'm like, you know, Hanson is a very common name, and I have no idea. <laughs> well, we got through. And I Jesus here is saying, who did this? Who touched me? And he's giving her the opportunity to share. But before we get here, I love Peter. Peter gives me so much hope in the Bible. Peter shows me that ministry happens in spite of me, not because of me. Like we have nothing to do. If anything good that God's doing in our life, if you have the opportunity to help minister to some other person, realize you have nothing to do with any fruits. It's all God. All we do is ruin things. And so as Jesus, who touched me in this huge crowd? Peter, but master, like this, I, I kind of hear this tone in his voice. Master, the people are crowding and pressing around. Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? So much hope here. Jesus looks at Peter and he's, he says, verse 46, but Jesus said, someone did touch me. For I was aware that power had gone out of me. Whoa. I don't have power to start with, let alone to have it like go out of me. Jesus says, no, somebody touched me. And when they touched me, power left. And can you imagine this woman? We're going to see that she's. When when the woman saw that she had not escaped, noticed she came trembling and fell down before him. Like she knows she's healed, but she's only dealt with the religious the legalist, the people that were about the law, you do this, you do this, you do this, you're right with God. You're unclean. You can't go to any of the ceremonies in Jerusalem. You cannot worship in our synagogue. Stay off the ground. You're going to defile us. And at this moment, as she thinks, as she reaches out and touches the rabbi, that suddenly she's contaminated him and he's in trouble. She knows he's God. She'd broken every rule. And she comes before him, I mean, physically trembling, falling down at his feet, like on her face, not just saying, I fall down. Like literally, she's on her hands and knees before him. And then to everybody. And declared in the presence of all the people. To everybody who's there, the reason why she touched him. She had a... I've been bleeding for 12 years. I spent every dollar I had. Every doctor. I've only gotten worse. I've I've been in loneliness. I haven't held a baby in 12 years. I haven't had somebody hold my hand in 12 years. I haven't had a hug in 12 years. I haven't been anything in 12 years. And I came by faith touching him. Or I came and I touched him. And immediately my body was restored. In the last 10 days, see, you know, that Wednesday night when the Unshackled program. We have Bible study every Wednesday night in worship team practice. We probably have about 20 people here on Wednesday nights. This is not a guilt trip. This is just humor for me. So I talked to Casey that night. And I'm like, man, this is like before the whole thing. It was getting really uncomfortable. Because the Unshackled radio program, like, literally took, like, the, it was the low lights of my life. Like stuff that was very emotionally hard, the, my worst struggles and things that I've gone through. And I say, hey, let's have a potluck. We'll have hot dogs and chips and soda. We'll have a big party and listen to this. Everybody comes. Place is packed. And I'm going, man, like this is like, like people are going through like the line getting hot dogs. And I'm like eating my hot dog. Kind of like, you know, that like first day of school where you're getting kind of sick to your stomach. Like I, what was I thinking? And Casey was the one who was like, yeah, you invite him to Bible study, about 10 people show up. You invite him to hear all your garbage and a hot dog, and they're here, you know. And it's like, oh, I know. And at the end of it, it was kind of like, well, I've never really done this before. Is there questions? Is this time for Q&A? And we've been dialoguing over this, like Anna and I, and, and talking to people. And there's something so liberating about just saying, you know what? This is my junk. This is where I was. It's not of anything I've done. 
Like every time I try to do good stuff, I would just fail. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and God is so good, and he reached, I reached to him like this woman, and he cleansed me. And I'm not afraid to share my story. And there's, there's, there's so much liberation, even from, as a pastor, that like, I don't come up here and have to like, pretend that I'm perfect to you guys. You guys know me well enough, you call me on but it's like, but there's freedom to know, hey, I'm just a guy that's navigating life. I make mistakes. I can't do everything. I make, I, I misspeak sometimes. I don't, I'm not always sensitive like I should be. Like I don't, I, I, but I'm doing the best I can and God's still doing a work in me. To the contrast, like Anna, where she grew up was in a very like legalistic, all about the external, putting on the right sort of stuff. And the conversations about, well, there's so much freedom in just being transparent and sharing and reaching out for help than trying to put on this appearance that you're perfect. Because when you put on this appearance that you're perfect, you realize how rotten you are on the inside and it only gets worse. And I love that Jesus gave her the opportunity from the get-go. Like I wish in my life almost, like I kind of felt when I came to Christ, I spent about 10 years feeling like I had to put on the external show Hiding my tattoos. Like, Anna, the girl I married, I don't think she saw my tattoos until, like, after we were engaged and close to getting married. I cruised around with long shirts for, like, a year. Gunner, it's, like, 115 degrees, and you're wearing a long sleeve shirt? You know what? I just was so cold back in training. Like, whatever, like, but trying to, like, I felt like if you wanted to be a good Christian, you were supposed to look a certain way. And so there's like been this freedom and growing in Christ to realizing that, you know what? None of us are perfect. There's one that's perfect, and that's God. And she had this opportunity from the get-go to give him all the glory to share. And Jesus looks at her, and he said to her in verse 48, daughter. Now Larry caught the 12 years. The one you might not catch is back in verse 42. You have Jairus, his only daughter. Jesus calls this woman daughter, and you wouldn't notice it, but this is the only place in the New Testament that Jesus calls somebody daughter. She had no, she had no gyrus. She had no husband. This is what I love when you see broken families restored and seeing like families like, like this whole redemption. That God is the God of the fatherless. To widows and orphans that this is true and undefiled religion. This is powerful. He calls her daughter. I don't know what she felt when she heard this. And for me as a dad, as I've like growing in my walk with Christ to realize that I carry the name father. It's huge. That God, when he wants to describe himself to people, he uses the term father. And not all of us have the best fathers or the best upbringing or the best husbands or the best, like, there's a lot of hard stuff out there. Like, I'm not in denial about that stuff. I came from a totally harsh environment. And seeing the title father, there's great power for good or evil. And I can't control other dads or other people or my dad or whatever, but all I know for me with my daughters, to know that when she calls me daddy, father, like she, through me, is supposed to be learning of who God is. And man, that like is scary. I have to talk to her when she's about 40. I say, how did I do, kiddo? <laughs> you know? Thanks for being forgiven. And I say sorry a lot to my kids. You can apologize to your children at two years old. I say sorry to them so often because I'm not perfect. He says, your faith has made you well. See, All through the Old Testament, sin is described as sickness. And she's been made well, but her faith has healed her with the Lord. And he says, go in peace. Shalom Aleichem. Go in peace, my daughter, my child. And and we don't know anything else about this girl. But I picture Jairus there going, Jesus, my daughter. (laughs) It's like, she's dying. This is beautiful and all. But my 12-year-old, that's... The other, you just called her daughter. What about my daughter? Can we get moving now? I mean, I'm just trying to keep it real. You know, like that's, this is like, I'd be like, come on, Jesus, come on. But you can't because he's God and he's the Messiah. And like, but it's like, come on, Rabbi, like my kid. 
And while he's there, while he was still speaking, like I can just picture like this dad and Jesus is like still speaking. He's still talking. It's like, come on. Like all the nonverbal clues you can give, like, <clears throat> like try my daughter. And while she's still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. This is like the worst chaplain ever. Hey, dude, Jairus, you, this whole thing with your daughter. I don't bother him anymore. Your kid's dead is how I kind of read it. It reminds me of that there was one of my instructors through training. He used to tell a funny story about how brutal the environment of the culture that we were getting into. He's like, yeah, I'll never forget. I was 22 years old. I was on deployment. I was in the Philippines. My chief came out and said, hey, all you young guys, everybody who has a living grandma on your maternal side, please step forward. And he's like, well, my grandma's alive. He stepped forward. He's like, God, not so fast, Jerry McCauley. Red Cross message came in last night. Your grandma died. Sorry to break the news to you. (laughs) It's like, oh, horrible. It's not funny, but it's funny. But he told it and it was funny. And he's, you know, he's, it's what it is. He's an interesting character because of this. But I see this guy just coming up and say, hey, dude, your, your daughter's dead. Jesus is of no value to you anymore. Stop bothering him. See, Jesus wasn't just like raising people from the dead all over. There's only three instances, Jairus' daughter included, where Jesus raised somebody from the dead. And the lesson I learned here is if you ever, like there will be a time in your life when you're faced with a crisis of your own, but I'm talking about when you're there to, to support somebody else that's going through a major trauma If I've learned anything in the last six years of being a pastor, the hardest lesson I've learned in those moments is to not say anything. When a parent is crying over a dead child, that is not the time to teach theology on the sovereignty of God and how God's got to like this is don't just just don't say anything. There's nothing more powerful than a hug. Being there, don't say, I know exactly what you're going through. I can't imagine. It's been the hardest thing. I get called to stuff as a pastor, and I drive, like half the time I just drive and say, God, just help me. That's like keep my stupid mouth shut. I don't know what to say. And I get nervous, and you want to help. So you start talking, and then you like realize that that was really stupid. So then you want to talk more, and then you're just like, the best thing I like should hold a hand, give a hug. I'm here for you. I love you. God loves you too. We'll get through this. And so here's this dad. Like, if I'm him, I mean, this is where, like, I don't even want to, like, it's, like, don't even, like, putting myself in his shoes. But in those last moments, you, like, you know, like, when you don't have much time. And he leaves. And he finds out she's dead. And I'd be thinking, oh man, there's Anna like over our daughter. I should have been there. I should have been there to be praying with my daughter. Like here she is, a little girl. She's leaving this earth to pray with her, to sing my one song that I know how to sing. I love you, Lord. I sing it just about, you know, not every night, but just about every night to my kids. Should have been there as she like went into his arms. And he's sitting there. And in these moments of crisis, when they happen to like to you, your brain isn't the most linear. Every thoughts are swirling. There's this crowd. He's still got to get to his kid. Like if I was him at this point, I'm done with you, Jesus. I got to get home to my wife now. You're lollygagging here. You're like still dealing with this woman. I got to get back. And then Jesus heard this. When Jesus heard this, he answered him. Do not be afraid any longer, only believe, and she'll be made well. And so now I hear Jairus, this whole, your daughter's dead. Don't be afraid, only believe, she'll be made well. Your daughter's dead, don't be afraid. Like this whole, in his mind, like what in the world is happening? What do I do? How do I respond? And I love this because I think that this is the theme of this whole passage. If there's anything that we gain from this story... Everybody involved is desperate apart from Christ. He's the only solution. And in him, he says, 
Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. It's the battle between fear and faith. See, I don't know what you're going through, but if you're alive, you're going through a struggle. David Jeremiah said you're either going into a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. Like there's always drama. As long as you are in a sinful world, there's going to be struggles. And when the struggles come and difficulty happens, we are. I am such a good warrior. If that was a spiritual gift, that would be my gift. Like seriously, I worry. I can stay up all night. And my mind is amazing trap of like information. Like I remember like everything. Which means I can worry about everything. And it can just go in circles and I can worry and worry and worry and fear. And Satan just gets, well, what about this? What about this? How are you going to get through this? You know, all like, I mean, I could go on forever about all this stuff. And Jesus says, only believe, have faith, trust in me. Your greatest problem is well within God's ability to help you through it. And God wants you to reach out to him like this woman reaching out to Jesus' scarf in faith. There's hope there. There's peace there in Christ. In the midst of the world's greatest storms, you can find peace. And the first time it happens to you when like the bottom drops out on your world and you've been walking with Christ and you think, I should really be freaking out right now. But I have peace. This is weird. Like it's an anomaly. It's happened to me a couple times. Only a couple. (laughs) And he tells this guy, don't be afraid. Only believe. She'll be made well. And the guy moves with Jesus. We see that the story continues. When they come to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him. Except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. So as they get there, I love this picture. Back to Peter. I love Peter. The guy who gives me hope to do ministry, to realize it's not about me, it's all about God. The one who said, but Master, there's a crowd around you. He says, come on in, Peter. And when I look at this, as he allows Peter into this room, Peter, James, and John, these three disciples, they are allowed into intimate moments, these sacred moments. The opportunities... That I've had in my ministry to stand with those who have lost somebody as the body still remains. These are like the most sacred, intimate moments that I don't even know how to like. I didn't see. They don't. You can't learn this in seminary. But to be there in deep sorrow and pain, and to be able to give these hugs and to be there in the hospital room, in the medical examiner's office. There's just. Something sacred when people are that close. And so Jesus is entering into this room with this 12-year-old lifeless body with mom and dad, Peter, James, and John. And the lesson I learned here is that ministry and serving is caught, not taught. One of the best seminary classes I ever had was my crisis counseling class. I thought this is going to be great. We're just going to read books, talk about it. What if it to death? And we started reading through like chapters, like like you name it. Suicide, loss of a child, cancer, divorce, um, depression. And so the teacher says, well, he's the head counseling pastor of Shadow Mountain, which is the mega church. So he's got like all kinds of people. And he said, what we're going to do is I'm going to sign you a chapter every week. We're going to come. We'll talk about it for 30, like 30 minutes, 15, 30 minutes. He's like, I don't want you guys talking too much because you don't have a clue. He's like, then I'm going to have somebody come in and talk with us for an hour that's gone through this very thing. And then after they leave, we'll talk for another hour. And so to have parents coming in who said, you know what? My child committed suicide in the principal's office 10 years ago. And this is how people tried to help us. And this is what we like, what was helpful, which wasn't helpful. Don't do this because it was really hard. A guy from the, the DEA field agent who had terminal brain cancer. that I think he died within like weeks or months. Year, like it's, I don't know. But he's like, you know what? It's been really hard. This is what's going, this is how my faith has helped me. These are things that have been really helpful when people have met with me. Lady came in who was divorced. I mean, this is power. Like, 
stuff that's just like real. And that class more than anything has impacted my ministry more than anything because I saw it was, I caught it. You can't read it in a book. And this is what ministry is. This is why when I go like run church errands, I take grace with me so we can get to Chipotle, but also so we can pick it up. But also so we can like, you know, we pick up our goldfish and I can't tell you like watching that little kid carrying like trying to carry two or three boxes of goldfish and our church like consumes goldfish big time. <laughs> I'm not doing away with the goldfish because I don't even know the backlash I would face if I got away with the goldfish. But to see her like carrying these boxes of goldfish down the hallway saying, oh, it's so much fun serving Jesus. And to let her see this stuff. Like we, when we go to Mexico, we take our kids so they can catch ministry. We're going to go to vacation in Spain and we say, oh, we got missionaries in Italy. Why don't we just do a jaunt over to Italy? It's like saying, oh, well, since I'm in San Diego, I'm just going to fly to New York City for the weekend just to do a little with the kids. Like I would do it myself. No, let's take grace and the kids so they can see what like what it, what missionaries go through and how we can encourage them. And this is ministry serving alongside other people. And I love that Jesus set this precedence for us. And now as they go in, verse 52, we see now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but she is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she, she had died. See, these mourners during the school, there'd be people all over. There would be profession, like professionals, or that's just kind of what they did. When somebody died, they would put on their sackcloth. They would tear their clothes. They would put on a huge show to let everybody know that something, that death had touched this family. And if you read Mark's account, I'm going to, for speeding up, I'm not going to go there. But where you have your bookmark, in, in Mark chapter 5, I think it's around verse 29 or so, um, 39, we see that they come to the front of the house. These are, people are there. Jesus says, don't worry, she's just asleep. I'm going to wake her up. And they start laughing at him. And he says, you guys, please leave. And then they enter the house with mom, dad, and the three disciples. And then they come into the room. Mom likely was there when the daughter passed, held her, kissed her, said goodbye. The dad is like, he hasn't seen her yet. I mean, I, I imagine like gagging, wanting to throw up to see your lifeless, gray, cold, 12-year-old daughter there. And Jesus in verse 54, he, however, took her by the hand. So he takes this little girl's hand, cold in his hand, and the power of touch. Did Jesus need to be here to raise this girl from the dead? No, absolutely not. Remember the story of the centurion who's called out to Jesus and said, I understand all this stuff earlier in the Luke. And he, Jesus just said, man, your faith is amazing. I haven't seen anything in all of Israel like this. Jesus can heal from wherever. He can restore from wherever. He's God. But he goes here because he loves this little girl. He grabs her by the hand. And there's power in human touch. Linking back to that woman who had no touch, Jesus holds her hand. And he called, saying, child, arise. He just spoke, child, arise. I have a two-year-old black lab. I love labs. Labs are crazy. They have so much energy. I have a two-year-old black lab and a, like an 11-year-old black lab that's like a total slob, never been trained. He's your stereotypical lab. Love him. He was my dad's dog. We inherited him. You put him. He's great as long as you have a yard and like you're not trying to put him on a leash. He's no obedience. But when I got the lab, the black one, I'm like, you know what? It would be kind of cool to try to check out like a, a, a trained dog. And so when I went to Mongolia, I sent my little black lab up to Rainy Ranch, which is up in Lake Is like Santa Isabel. What is that big lake? Lake whatever. Henshaw, that one. For two months for boot camp. And then when I got this dog back, it's like awesome going out at places. People see me there, you're an amazing dog trainer. And I'd look at him, i smile, kind of like, <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. But this dog can be out running. And I say, here, the dog comes here. I say, heal, the dog sits here. When I play catch, I throw the ball. She goes and gets the ball, brings it right back down. My left side drops the ball at my feet. I pick it up, throw it again. Every other dog I've had my whole life 
this is how it goes. I throw the ball. The dog gets the ball. And then I chase the dog around for the next hour trying to get the ball out of his mouth. I don't know who's playing fetch with who. (laughs) But Jesus has so much authority. And you see a trained dog when it responds by voice. Drop it. The dog just drops the ball. Jesus says, child, arise. He just says, let the life come back. And her spirit returned just like that. Death has no authority over Jesus. Spirit returning. All death is is your spirit separating from your body. And one day, Twinkle and I, our bodies will be, I don't know how it's going to work, but it's going to be, I think, a pretty cool ride, you know. But he speaks. Her spirit comes back. She yawns, comes back. And I can't even imagine mom and dad at this place. I mean, talk about tears coming. Talk about suddenly dad kissing her, loving her. Thank you. Oh, worshiping Jesus simultaneously. And when I look at the story, I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 that says, you know what? It's better to be in the house of mourning than it is to be in the house of feasting. And why is that? Well, I can tell you in my job, like, I don't know what it is. I like tragedies like are always around me. Like always around me. There's a there's a couple from the first service that there was a motorcycle fatality. I didn't even know it was a fatality. And they said, Oh yeah, we met you at the fatality. I'm like, I was had a motorcycle fatality. And I was like, Oh, now I remember you. I didn't know that. And everywhere I go, I see this death and people dying and funerals of all different ages. All different people like all like I don't care how much money you have, I don't care what your background is. And being around death and dying, what it's done, is it's sobering. And I found that now, since I've become a pastor and been more intimate with death and like the shortness of life and dealing with this whole thing, well, I've heard that marital couples like get in fights sometimes. <laughs> I've heard about it. <clears throat> but but you know, like, like now that I'm like realize how life short life is and i like this family that lost their daughter suddenly it like puts it into perspective like i know i say sorry a whole lot faster than i ever did before i say sorry to my my child like thinking man i care about my name father like anything i do bad is making god look bad so i like need to be quick to like you know i'm not perfect i made a mistake will you forgive me i'm really sorry i'll do better next time at this moment when this daughter came back, I changed their life. And Jesus got some food for her to eat. And her parents were amazed, of course. They knew their daughter was dead. And now her grayness turned to like a, you know, colorful cheeks. She's eating. She's smiling. But he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Which is kind of weird. Like we know there's a big crowd out there. There's a huge crowd following Jesus. We already know that this girl was sick. And then the guy came announced to everybody, hey, your daughter's dead. Don't don't bother the teacher anymore. Then he kicks all these people out. And now they're in this room, the the three disciples, the parents, and this daughter and Jesus. He says, don't tell anybody about this. Well, that kid's going to like walk out that front door eventually. Why would he say this? And how does a parent who loses a child that hits him, how do they not speak about it? And why would Jesus say this? And how does this fit with verse 39 of chapter 8, which the guy that was the demon possessed, that he said, no, you can't come with me. Stay, tell everybody what happened in your life. Well, the difference is, is the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a ruler to come. To take to free them from Roman authority, and Jesus said, "Now is not the time to speak," because Peter would eventually speak and proclaim, even if they threw him in prison. And when I look at this story, there's about three different things to kind of close with. <clears throat> We're done here. My number one point of like every single message I'm coming to notice in the, like the four years of preaching, the number one point never changes. <laughs> You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Like if you don't have Jesus as your savior, like Jesus is not, 
a rabbit's foot. He's not, he's not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is God. Everything we have, life, breath, everything is a gift that he's given to us in his grace. If you don't have Jesus as Savior, you're, you have no bearing. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died for us, paid for our sins in full. There's nothing that we do to earn our salvation. And like this woman and like this man have had no other options, that's us. And when we reach out to Jesus, our garbage doesn't make him dirty. He makes us clean. And it's his cleanness in us. And as I look at this story, I'm reminded of the need that there's so many hurting people. And if you want to be effective in helping people, and I hate to break it to you, if you're a Christian, you're called to serve. You're called to be a light unto the Lord. You're in ministry. My role, according to Ephesians chapter 4 through 11, is simply to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not for me to do all the ministry. I can't. There are so many hurting people. You need to be in the word. You need to be praying. You need to be saying, Lord, here I am. And you'll be amazed at what God will do to help the hurting people. We're going to, close, we're going to sing a song, Mighty to Save. Rick's going to come up. You guys can stand if, you're, if you want to. I've been talking a long time, so if you need to stretch it out, go ahead and stand up. The worship team's going to come up, and we'll close in a prayer, and then we'll sing this last song. Um, Father, we do... Thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. I thank you for Christ. Lord, that as that hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Father, we thank you that you haven't called us um, to a life of works, trying to earn our salvation with you, for we know, that I know, that there's nothing that I could do um, to pay for my sins, Lord. It'd be futile. And I thank you, Lord, that Jesus did all my sins, past, present, future, that in him I'm clean. And Father, I pray for each person here, Lord. We're all on different journeys. We're going through different things. We're going through different storms. Lord, there are things that we go through in this life that fear grips us, and we don't know how we're going to get through them. And Lord, we sometimes don't even know how to turn to you. And so, Lord, I just pray for those that are hurting, Lord, that you would help them, Lord. That as they reach out to you, you would respond, Lord, that you would help them. That you'd help each of us, Lord, as we each have storms to go through. We pray that you would use us, Lord, as your people to bring hope and faith to a, to a hurting, hurting world. Father, we thank you for community that we don't have to do this alone. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes open to people around us who are lonely like this woman. Twelve years, no touch. We're in a world that's so connected through media, yet I think we're as distant from people as we've ever been. Father, help us to reach out and to love on people. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you are Messiah. You're able to save and redeem us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.